We will review the main stories in the newspapers with our panel this morning. Jared Howland, public affairs consultant and also columnist with the Irish Examiner. Lee's Hand is a columnist with the Sunday Times. And Cormac Lucy, financial analyst, uh, also a columnist with the Sunday Times. We're overrun with you today. Um, and the Mail, also a former political advisor. Good morning to you all. And and both Lee's and Cormac, you, you, you were both at the match yesterday. So a, a synopsis, please, before we begin. It was fairly attritious. Well, I think every game in modern rugby these days is fairly, as you say, attritious. Um, But I mean, it was a fantastic result and I found it an absorbing and brilliant game, to be honest with you. I think that we had been on such a high after the after the marvelous victory in Chicago against the Old Blacks. Then the, the little bit of the low about not repeating the, the the trick last week, and I think this the people went into this game feeling that it would be a great one to end off the the uh, the autumn season on a on a high and set us up nicely for next year's Six Nations. And there was lots to be happy about. I mean, there were some wonderful performances from some of the very young players. I think for one of the best things that shows that we do have actually a, like a, we're getting a deep bench now. So when, as you say, the attritious thing happens and people go off and, and we, lo- we lose five or six <laughs> people carted off. On yeah, the back I of mean, the once upon a time that used to spell doom and that was it. You know, somebody who maybe had a run out in one in you know, maybe once in six months came on. But now, you know, we had some real quality bit com- coming off the bench. And, you know, we everybody was just mesmerised by some of the young talent like Tyke Furlong and particularly Gary Ringrose, mm. whose first try did, and I think rightly so, remind a lot of people of the uh, of young Brian O'Driscoll. You know, the same sort of low centre of gravity, that lovely sort of dodging and weaving thing, sort little, of ability of space. A little fast moving small fella. A little fast moving small fella. And, you know, it, you know, when the rest of them look like brick outhouses, you know, you need a few of them as well, just to sort of <laughs> add a bit the, of the grace to the game. Is the brick outhouses, they take the hits and, and they do get hurt. And we saw that, yes. I'm sure there was lots of mammies and wives and girlfriends watching through closed hands at this point. I mean, the sport has become so physical it has and that needs uh, my, 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 I want to say my child came in my young fella came in I was watching the match and he says oh you, you shouldn't allow uh, the two year old to watch something so violent which I thought was a reflection on the game and he was only looking at it for a few minutes but I'd agree with Lisa I think it was a tremendous game and it didn't have the nasty undercurrent that the game a week ago against the All Blacks had and uh, it's also the first time that a Northern Hemisphere team has beaten each of the three big Southern Hemisphere powerhouses, South Africa, New Zealand and Australia, in one season since 2003. Wow, OK. So that's a good year. We'll take that as a November average, isn't it? Good. I think that's yeah. pretty good, yeah, yeah. as I said. It's sure that good, you know, it sets up the uh, next uh, Six Nations. To or sets cracker. us up for a massive fall <laughs> when no, we don't we do anything. None of, none of this negativity now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be talking to Shane Byrne about that match in the next hour as well. But let's have a look at the front pages of the Sunday newspapers. The Sunday Times, to begin with, they have a great picture, if nothing else, of Fidel Castro. Uh, a young Castro uh, with the s- cigar smoke rising from his mouth. Fidel Castro, 1926 to 2016. Scourge of the West dies at 90. But their story by Mark Tai and Colin Coyle focuses on what President Michael D. Higgins said yesterday. He has been criticised, according to the front page article, for an offensive and wholly inappropriate tribute to Fidel Castro after the former Cuban leader died at the age of 90. Higgins said he learnt of Castro's death with great sadness and paid tribute to him, bringing significant political and social change to his country. Michael D. praised Cuba's literacy rates, the health service and economic growth, saying its inequality and poverty were much less pronounced than its neighbours. And then there's a whole list of other people who came out about Michael D.'s comments, including uh, Noel Rock, the Fine Gael TD, 
lady um, saying Fidel Castro killed and tortured political opponents and minorities. Ronan Mullen said in light of the dreadful human rights record of the Castro regime, um, President Higgins' fawning tribute was offensive and wholly inappropriate. Uh, we'll come back to that story in a minute. It's on the other papers as well. But they also uh, have a story on the front page. The family of a clinically dead pregnant woman who secured a high court order in 2014 to turn off her life support are suing the HSE for medical negligence. Uh, the story was a big story at the time. Uh, the father of the 26-year-old, known as Miss P, last week filed a high court action against the HSE and its former national director for acute hospitals. Front page of the sin- Sunday Independent a fury at President's praise for Castro is the story there. Also a picture of a younger Castro in his military garb. Uh, ministers hacked passwords up for sale. Who'd want to hack into the ministers that we have, for God's sake? Enda Kenny, apparently, his LinkedIn password is available. I was thinking, who would... What, like, you're a Taoiseach. You're the leader of the state. Why would you need a LinkedIn account? Is he planning on a career afterwards that he needs to put up the profile so, so he tells everybody where he worked? We kind of know. I mean, well, you see, I suppose the purpose of the LinkedIn profile, and I, th- I think here, John, you're being a bit cynical, it's about, it's about keeping Leo and Simon on edge. <laughs> and by updating the LinkedIn profile on a regular basis, sure, he's keeping them awake in the middle of the night. <laughs> Kenny, amongst those in cyber attack, is the story in the Sunday Indo. Enda Kenny and six other cabinet members have had private email and password details compromised by international cyber criminals responsible for the world's biggest hacking scandal and there's a great story about a row between the Russian ambassador and the Bishop of El Finn. The Bishop of El Finn has his eye on Putin's Russia and the Kremlin don't like it, writes Jerome Kelly an extraordinary correspondence has emerged between the most reverend Kevin Doran and the ambassador to the Russian Federation Her, His Excellency Maxim Peshkov uh, The Bishop um, was given out about the Syrian conflict His letter was written uh, on October 13th and it provoked an undiplomatic response from Putin's man in Dublin who accused the cleric of ignorance and falling prey to preconceived Western propaganda. Hmm. Touch of the Skibbereen Eagle about that, really. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure that, that there's a letter must have gone to the diocese today now condemning Russia, I'm sure, is being spoken from the pulpit as we speak. At the Sunday Business Post, um, they give with one hand and they take away with the other. First time buyer's grant scheme faces acts, so in the week that the central bank guidelines are relaxed, the paper is reporting that the government's controversial 20 grand first time buyer's grant is facing the acts amid fears it would push house prices to an unsustainable level following the central bank's relaxation of mortgage lending rules this week. The government is understood to be concerned about the effects of both measures, while Fianna Fáil have said that they will force the termination of the grant next September if if property prices start to spiral. So if you're a first-time buyer and thought you're on the pig's back, don't be silly. We're not going to make it that easy for you. Uh, they have an exclusive on the front page, which is a very serious one. It's about a, a drug called Orcambi. It treats cystic fibrosis, but the cost of it, is, it has been rejected uh, by the HSE. Um, a formal announcement is imminent, right, Susan Mitchell, after the HSE's Drugs Committee recommended against funding the drug at a recent meeting. The committee, which involves various senior clinicians, decided it is not going to deliver enough benefits to patients to justify the eye-watering €159,000 annual price tag. Uh, we'll be talking to somebody who has cystic fibrosis and who has used or can be about the reaction to that later on. The Irish Mail on Sunday. St John of God's was on brink of collapse. Charity bosses warned HSC they were running out of cash just weeks after returning from a 23 grand trip to Florida. And the Sunday World um, has a story. Our brave, our Kim's brave battle. This is the terrifying story of that young girl from Monaghan, Kim Owens, who was a uh, 
attack so viciously in Maynooth and they have an interview with the father who says she's doing as well as she can. Um, they're saying the CCTV, which they're hoping to use to, tr- to find whoever was responsible for this. Unfortunately, there was fog, uh, which means that uh, the attacker wasn't caught there. And Gardy have been retracing her walk of horror as they describe it uh, and more details on that inside the newspaper as well. I, I want to talk about Michael D. Please, Michael D. speaks from the heart. We know that. He, he, he's somebody who is not behind the door when it comes to putting his opinions out there, even give, given the restrictions of the office. But a lot of people were surprised at, at the tone of his statement yesterday, which were described, as I said there, as a somewhat fawning towards Castro. Uh, should we be surprised that Michael D. Higgins might think that there was some good in the man despite the obvious negatives? Well, I think anyone who knows Michael D. Uh, Michael D.'s politics, personal politics, wouldn't be surprised that he would have been an admirer um, of uh, Fidel Castro. But I think the fact that he is our, our head of our head of state and he released the statement, which was frankly com- was completely fawning, apart from one mildly critical half sentence, I think is actually a misstep by him. I really do. And I think it's quite a serious one um, because he is supposed to speak on behalf of the people. He is not supposed to express what, which was, in my view, a personal opinion. Now, I mean, I'm, I have immense respect for as president and I'm extremely fond of him as well as a person. Um, but I think that this is actually a grave mistake by him. Uh, I think he has stepped up to the line on many occasions, but being a very, very... Um, I suppose, experienced politician and somebody who knows the way around the Constitution. He's always managed to express his opinions within the parameter, maybe push them slightly of his role. But this is really, I think he was expressing a personal opinion on, as the guise of, uh, of President of Ireland. And I think it was a mistake because the everybody's out has rode out now and, you know, there's not a criticism about him. Um, I think that Castro is obviously a very divisive figure. Some people think he's a hero. Some people think he's a villain. But that wasn't the president's role to express that. Mm. It was he should have really have just have released something which could have been much more nuanced, could have expressed both sides of you. And uh, I think he's left himself open and exposed himself now and the and the role to criticism. Well, we, we can contrast it with Charlie Flanagan, who was expressing his condolences to the people of Cuba uh, and says, while his legacy is a complex one, Fidel Castro was a major figure in 20th century history and his death marks the end of an era. So well, that was, you, yeah, that was more of a brushstroke. Absolutely. And I mean, if you compare, you know, that statement to... Uh, President Higgins' statement he released on the election of Trump, which I thought was a, a triumph of um, of shade throwing in a way because he, th- you know, he congratulated the people of America without actually congratulating uh, the president-elect. So I, I, I suspect he might have dashed this off without really thinking through the consequences. I mean, I don't know, but it strikes me it was a very much a personal thing. Mm, and we've, we've two former political advisers in the former Jared Howland and Cormac Lucy. Lads, would you have advised Michael Dee to do something different other than he did? Well, the issue of advice is critical uh, here, Jonathan, because the net question is, uh, was this a sta- statement approved by the government or seen by it before it was issued? Uh, and if it wasn't, it effectively it means the president took a position in terms of foreign policy that was beyond his remit, uh, and he should not have done so. So it's not just a matter of personal opinion, which he's entirely entitled to. It was whether he overstepped the appropriate boundary of all of his office, which I believe he did, because it was his statement that was carried globally uh, that gave an impression of Ireland's position uh, and effectively preempted the government's uh, more, much more nuanced position. And I think that's the net position 
on the issue of advice. Uh, and also, I- if you co- compare and contrast, for example, the difference between the death of the recent Shimon Peres, the president of Israel, who, like Castro, was a foundational figure in his own country. Um, and of course, uh, President Higgins, though he didn't have another engagement at the time, didn't attend that funeral. There was no similar statement issued at the time. And you compare and contrast how various countries and people are picked and mixed in, in, in the lexicon of, of, of the left versus the right in, in a way that makes no rational sense whatsoever. And, and to finally f- finish with just with one, one subject, and you, uh, Lisa mentioned President Trump. I mean, Vice President Pence, for example, uh, believes in something called conversion therapy, which is basically that homosexuals can be sent off and treated. I, th- and, I think there's some form of electric shock therapy. Yes, I don't imagine it's pleasant and, and apparently it's not very uh, <laughs> thorough or, or worthwhile either. But Castro rounded up gay and lesbians for decades until they decided they needed a bit of tourism. Uh, and this is the man that our president has lauded. I find it disgusting. I agree with uh, Gerard. And I just, I just wrote down the criticism, the mild criticism, as Lise uh, says, of Michael D, uh, of, of, of Castro that Michael D had. Quote, the economic and social reforms introduced were at the price of a restriction of civil society which brought its critics. End quote. That is pathetic. This was a dictator who refused to allow elections. This was a dictator who, as Gerard says, perpetrated many human rights abuses. And one, one thing that Michael D. Higgins did not address was Castro's role in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Which nearly ended the world, one where, might where, argue. Where Castro was advocating that the Russians fire the missiles. And that, by the way, was the finest hour of John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert Kennedy. They were the two guys in the White House advocating uh, a more moderate tone and their views prevailed over the American military. So so Castro was a hardliner, yeah. warmonger, as well as a systemic denier of human rights. But I, I, look, and again, I'll, I'll take the position here that, that, you know, people will have viewed Castro as a revolutionary mm. and, and we, with the, his health system is apparently a model for the world as is his education system. And, and sorry, have you ever? I'm, s- I'm, I'm putting it out there. The argument. These are the have arguments. Have you ever been in either? No, I haven't. No. but this is what's being put forward. And what we're saying is that you know, is he up there with the idiomins of the world? Is he up there uh, somewhere in the middle, or is he a benign dictator? I mean, you, clearly, you're of the opinion that he's not. But you know, are some dictators to be viewed as better than others? Is that what the president is? is a, you have to see him in the broad sweep of history, particularly the sweep of Latin American history. And I think in that context, he's certainly, uh, you know, an anti-colonial nationalist uh, of some considerable renown and, and success. Uh, he's certainly left behind a country that does have successes uh, to, to speak of. Uh, and I suppose it, it is interesting that now, 60 years later, the single most enduring political institution he has bequeathed is his own family. Yeah, well, and that does stand In out. typical Latin American fashion. Well, this was one party rule. I mean, he took over in 1959 when Dwight Eisenhower, I think, was running the show and he handed over during George W. Bush's second term in office and then he handed over to his brother Raul. So, you know, he, he did, uh, you know, he did promise at one stage to introduce uh, democracy after the overthrow of Batista and then just signally didn't. Um, so, you know, I he is, defi- I mean, he's, he's always been a figure of 
respect and you know admiration among a lot of the left and so on, which is where Michael D. Higgins' politics have. And you see, have I, I, I saw a lot of people from Sinn Féin who were tweeting. Yeah, but sorry, all respectful things. And, 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 and see, this comes. This is basically it's not as between left and right. It's between liberal and anti-liberal, in my view, right? And right-wing dictators are utterly odious. Left-wing dictators are no le- less odious. But the left wing, like the right wing, is fundamentally authoritarian. It believes to one degree or another in running other people's lives and telling them what they should do. And it's democracy in the middle that believes that people should be allowed freedom and choices that is squeezed inexorably by both. There's another aspect here, which is that uh, Castro began as a rebel against the Batista military dictatorship and assembled a broad coalition, including Democrats, uh, then got into power and effectively edged everybody out for for his own advantage uh, thereafter. So I think he started out as a hero. I think the Americans made several missteps in in terms of they they, they kind of pushed him into the arms of the Russians. He's he's romanticised like Che Guevara is romanticised and ignoring what Che Guevara did mm. that was that was equally onerous. Let, let's just put some of the messages that have come in. I have had to put up, says one listener, with glowing tributes of many Irish politicians that passed away that I didn't think were deserved. Everyone has a view they're entitled to. I agree with our president. Uh, to counter that, someone says, I, I know radio loves strong opinions, so either love or hate Castro. It's far more subtle. Castro did lots of good stuff and bad stuff. Simple question. Would you have been better off in Cuba or Haiti in the last or 70, Costa Rica? You know, why Why produce the worst example of that hemisphere? Why not one of the better examples where they've produced much better health and education than Cuba without needing a dictatorship to ram it through? And on the same island. Um, but I, think it, I, just, I just think it's interesting just to sort of bring it back to Michael D. Higgins. I think this does, will open a debate about, you know, his... Um, possibility of running for a second term. I mean, I think I really think it's that serious. Well, I, I want to bring back to the, the other texts that have come in. Michael D should keep his personal opinions to himself. He doesn't speak for me and he should resign. Says Sean Maher in Wexford. Good morning to you, Sean. Is this something the president's going to have to revisit now? Well, I mean, it, it's going to be re- revisited upon him whether he wants it or not, because um, I think this is for the first time has given uh, maybe people a reason to say, well, you know, is this his judgment, you know, should he actually run for second term? You know, should he have a... There was a general expectation... Which, by the way, like Castro, he gave a commitment to do. <laughs> yes, well, that's a good point, actually. So, you know, I think this this will actually open the debate again because people will say, well, you know, that isn't his... You know, he's not sitting there like a satrap, you know, able to sort of dispense personal opinions from the Irish. He's but supposed this to is the man... That he was on the Late Late Show three weeks ago. The whole country was falling no, over. We're not going absolutely. to lose sense of that. We're not going to lose sense of that, but I think it might bring an extra layer of critical thinking into his position, which I think if he had absolutely said, yes, I'm definitely going to run for second term, he probably would have run unopposed. I think this will literally genuinely change the game. I really do. I think it is that well, well, maybe Maybe like Trump, his advisers will just have to take away from him his capacity to issue statements unfiltered. <laughs> I would but, like but there to is see a the series, There is a net one. serious issue for the government here. It cannot have a president preempting it on sensitive foreign policy issues, period. But there's always a trust between the Oris and Merrion Street. Which is based on informal contact. Yeah. And I ask, 
without knowing the answer, what level of contact, if any, was there before the statement issued? Well, we'll see if anything else comes out from Horace Nuthrod. Michael D doesn't tweet unlike mm. President-elect Trump, but uh, you never know. Let Michael D loose on Twitter. What can he get into 140 characters to try and fix this one? Uh, we, we'll talk next about a story that's on the Sunday Times. Worst boy in the class. It's a great picture of a very stern-looking end to Kenny uh, pulling Shane Ross by the ear. I'm assuming it's a Photoshop. We'll talk about that next. Lots of texts coming in. One listener says, I was in Cuba earlier this year. Lovely people. But the only good parts are the leftovers from the 30s and 40s. The poverty is worse than I've seen anywhere. India, for instance, will be light years ahead. Uh, another makes the point. Uh, poor old De Valera gets dragged into everything. De Valera sent condolences on the death of Hitler. President Higgins is entirely right to send condolences to a neutral country. Well, he didn't really send condolences. He was... He was no, he was correct. To say, he was yeah. absolutely correct no, to yeah. pay his condolences. It was the gushing extent in which he did so. Uh, Michael D should keep his opinions, his personal opinions to himself. He doesn't speak for me. He should resign, uh, is another text there. Um, worst boy in class. Poor old Shane Ross is getting uh, criticised here but it is one might argue Cormac Lucy largely fair because Shane Ross as a member of government we, we live <coughs> under the constitution yet um, we find ourselves um, in a time where collective cabinet responsibility means something very different Well I'm going to disappoint you Jonathan I'm going to go full Trump on this uh, I'm completely with Shane Ross in this matter and I think now we're talking we talk about the judges now. We're talking about the got judges. a few pots on the we're boil. About the judges. judges. But uh, Ross is, is now being put in a corner and uh, collectively vilified by off-the-record briefings by journalists following those briefings, and it's not dissimilar to the treatment that Michael McDool got when he, as Justice Minister, tried to bring in reforms, that uh, Alan Shatter got when he, as Justice Minister, tried to bring in reforms, and if you're a Justice Minister, you can either go for the easy life. Or you can try and introduce genuine reforms. But he's not the justice minister; he's the transport minister. And, and and the reason is we have a justice minister, Frances Fitzgerald, who's a very decent person. But when she got into office, the first thing she did was water down the reform proposals for the legal profession that her predecessor, Alan Shatter, had left. And she is amenable to the legal professions and the legal powers that be. Ross is not, and I think when when Ross is calling, for example, for a register of interests of judges. I fail to see what is so exceptional about that or what is so offensive about that. Jared Howland? Yeah, I would agree with Cormac in, in that respect. I think the the legal profession generally and judges in particular are, are you know, over enamoured of themselves. I don't have a problem per se with Shane Ross's views on, on the judiciary. Uh, what I find is much more problematical is what is he doing as Minister for Transport, um, Tourism and Sport, but particularly Minister for Transport, where this, uh, unlike tourism and, and, and sport, which, which you know are, have a sort of a life of their own, the whole transport thing is very state-driven. And I have a sense, I mean, he uh, last Tuesday published a list of priorities uh, for his department on his website, which was his basically, sta- you know, personal programme as Minister. It was, I thought, exceptionally anemic. I have no sense in this vital area that he has a worthwhile agenda. And so is, is, are you saying he is pursuing agendas other than his brief? Uh, I think as an independent Minister in government, 
he is absolutely entitled. Indeed, it would be an expectation that he should take an interest in a range of, of other topics. He's not a party minister uh, in, in that sense. Uh, so that's not my problem. My problem is, as Minister for Transport, I, I don't get the sense he's, he's on the job. I don't believe he has an agenda on something that's absolutely critical to economic uh, competitiveness. And I don't see ultimately how, as a minister, you're going to build support around the table for getting significant future capital investment unless you are broadening the conversation and bringing people along with you. And he seems to be acting not just as an independent minister in government, but as a guy with exceptionally sharp elbows in every situation that seems to preempt him building coalitions that are ultimately necessary to do things. Look, this is new politics. We don't do things by consensus or collaboration anymore. Whoever has the loudest voice manages to win out late. Well, I mean, it is quite obvious from the coverage in the papers over the weekend, um, yesterday and today, that the knives are out for him. Fine Fine Gael knives have been sharpened um, and there was a lot of briefing and spinning against him. And a lot of this he has actually brought upon himself. I think that uh, both Cormac and and Jared have made really good points about him pushing on the trying to bring about change to the way that business is done uh, in the judiciary. But it's not just that. I mean, really, from the moment that he he sat down in, in, you know, at the cabinet table, he has just caused trouble. He has, you know, he has poked his nose into areas that aren't, you know, really his remit. He has dug his heels in on things that perhaps they could have that escalated into rows that could have possibly have been smoothed over if you know people had tempers had been had been less uh, less frayed. Um, you're dealing with a coalition that is extremely fragile. And I think that he is not doing anything to to give an air of stability to the to a very 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 rackety coalition. Is, if he gave and if he gave that air of stability, you might argue, then he wouldn't be doing his job because if well, he, he went in there, as you say, with mm. an agenda to do that, one of the things on the agenda was to to reform the judiciary, and and you can see the overarching plan here is so that this is fixed into the future, not just for the next two or three years. But yeah. like, but sorry, I mean, there, there there is a matter of judgment and balance. So on the one hand, changing how judges are selected, having them have uh, a decade declaration of their interests, all of which, in my view, is absolutely fine. And then bringing that forward where you're not appointing board members uh, to boards where candidates have been through a public appointments process for months, where boards are down to, you know, where they're in quorate effectively or where boards are so few people, even where there is a quorum, they feel they, they must wait to take important decisions until new people are appointed. I mean, there is a balance between trying to fix it up and getting on with it. Mm. And there's also a law of unintended consequences here in relation to state appointments. The ultimate problem, I predict, will not be that you have unsuitable appointments, it's that you do not have suitable applicants. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, there is obviously a, um, there's no love lost. It's quite clear between the Taoiseach and between uh, his transport minister. I mean, this goes back to, I suppose, you could probably date it back to Shane's original, you know, snide remark about you know, doing business with the political corpse the political and all that. Corpse, yes, but, which you know, went down the well. thing about um, you know Enda Kenny is, you know, he does he doesn't forget. You know, I mean, he's he really hasn't forgiven him for that comment. And I mean, it's clear that there was a sh- there's been shouting matches between the two of them. And I think that Shane Ross would do well to remember that you know this Taoiseach has a ruthless streak in him, and he will not when hesitate pushed. to throw under a bus anybody who will 
potentially jeopardise his own political longevity. Well, well Enda Kenny is tremendously constrained because Fianna Fáil have told Fine Gael, you can govern if you can command a majority of non-Fianna Fáil TDs in Doyle Éireann. And based on that measure, the government has a majority of one. Yes, I so they could replace. So they could, he could be technically replaced by another, uh, maybe th- a more amenable. Have to, have to woo somebody else, and he's got mm. enough friends to go with them if he were pushed. Hugh O'Flaherty was a Supreme Court judge who resigned under very cloudy circumstances. We had Judge Curtin prosecuted for something. That prosecution uh, collapsed. We, we have serious issues regarding the substantive issue here. When Shane Ross turns up at a pre-scheduled meeting between the Justice Minister and judges, we immediately hear through the media that they were angered and dismayed. Like, how do you think that story got into the media? What do you think is going on here? We have a system of government in this country where the constitutional doctrine is collective cabinet responsibility. So if Shane Ross turns up at a cabinet level meeting and he is a cabinet minister to discuss an item on the cabinet agenda with judges, where is the problem? And if he uses his cabinet power to withhold consent for appointments, that is, you, you may question whether that is yeah, right. Is that, is within, is, that is within There's two separate issue. issues here. I mean, there's the, the issue, which I'm not particularly taking any issue with you on his strong line he's taking with, you know, with the judiciary. But the separate issue is his seeming inability to accept cabinet collect collective responsibility on a range of matters and on a range of topics that come up. And his he seems to be a lightning rod for all kinds of dissent inside cabinet, which is not a good message to be sending out when they're trying to say this is a stable government. And time after time again, if it's not John Halligan, it's Shane Ross. But do, do you think it is a coincidence that previous ministers who attempted reform in this area, yeah. Alan Shatter and Michael McDool, were also perceived as lightning rods. I agree, but it's not just on this issue. What you've got to understand is that it's not just that Fine Gael have an ideological affinity with the higher echelons of the bar and the judiciary. They actually have an emotional and familial uh, identity with the higher echelons of the bar and the judiciary. Okay. Uh, well, and with Shatter, of course, was the well, exception. Well, I know, but I, I, I wonder, I wonder, are they closer to compromise here than they are willing to admit that, mm. you know, we have the system that doesn't work. Well, it's, it's worked fine. There's no suggestion, I suppose, that in the wider sense that it's in any way problematic. It can but do with some improvements, it can but do it's, with improvement. it's not exactly collapsing okay, by I, any stretch. You of mentioned that the, the lack of love between Shane Ross and Enda Kenny and whether the Taoiseach is, is under pressure and how he reacts they're lining up behind him to take over at this point I mean the suggestion that he's going to be hanging around when the Pope turns up is, is, is an indication of how things might go but Simon Harris uh, it's on page 4 uh, has given a strongest indication yet page 4 of the Indo that he may challenge for the Fine Gael leadership um, quoting his of course the age thing comes up because he's what he's 30 years of age yes we are young um, but uh, that's a qualifier not a disqualifier was part of the speech he gave yeah. Well, look, if you're in, in cabinet and you're young and you see a long career in front of you, you do have to make shapes uh, about going for the job interview when the top job comes up, even if you don't expect to get it. I mean, I'd be. He's ex- too young to be president. 
Uh, no, and that's not a reason uh, William Pitt the Younger was in his 20s when he became uh, Prime yeah, Minister. Michael Collins got killed at 32. Two, so I wouldn't hold that against him at all. Uh, but I, I don't expect it to happen, by the way. But I don't expect Enda Kenny uh, not to be Taoiseach uh, any time in, in, in 2017. I, I believe he has a better than even chance of getting to through 2017. Well, I mean, it, it's. I have to say, I'm. I'm probably going to be proved wrong because I have always had this feeling all along that he w- wouldn't actually probably last m- much into next year. Um, and I've always, I suppose, put up the argument that, of course, he says he's going to stay on because as soon as he blinks, even for a nanosecond or hesitates, that's it. It's, it's game over, power gone, and he might as well just leave the office. There's, the a, there's a group of lads shuffling around outside, kicking their heels, waiting. Well, that yeah, was Castro see, understood all that, you see. Well, that, <laughs> but I think there is a window. I mean, I think there is actually a window where he will be allowed, you know, he is sort of they've backed off him a bit I mean he's been throwing shapes about being Mr Brexit and nobody can possibly do without me and you know he's was throwing massive shapes on Sky News uh, the other night you know sort of positing that it was going to take them two years over two years uh, to put together the, to put together a deal to, uh, to to leave Brexit the UK that is so he's trying to make himself indispensable and I mean it's he's probably has a window Indispensable to them or indispensable to well, us? Well you see this is the question I mean whether he thinks that, you know, he is now some kind of the only conduit that could possibly be available between the EU and the and the UK in this process. I don't know. But but I think check his LinkedIn. Maybe he's put something up there that might has. indicate what's going <laughs> to happen. Listen, it could be like a CV, you know, he speaks little French and all that gone up there. <laughs> but, you know, he has a window before the men in the suits come from, I think. Um, but it is a window. And it's not, it's not, you know, like a Jack and Ori window that's sort of of infinite size and shape. I mean, they will come from and they are lining up. And Simon Harris is a young man in a massive hurry and he would absolutely fancy his chances at that. Uh, one of the polls, there's a, an opinion poll that won't really give politicians any solace uh, at all, except for the anti-austerity lines who were cocked the walk uh, at the last Red Sea poll for the Sunday Business mm. Post. They were up at 9%. They lost 4% in that. So I think we can write that one off as a rogue poll. Fianna Gael are 25%, no change. Fianna Fáil down 2, uh, Sinn Féin up 3. So it's the kind of Lanigan's ball mm. we've had from the political opinion. But, but the, the, the one thing that stands out for me is this attitude towards public sector, public section or sector, I would call it, pay restoration. Full public say sector pay restoration. If there was a way this could be done with no impact on the tax cuts or spending and public services agreed in the last budget, which is the caveat, of course. Yeah, big um, 81% say, yeah, give them the money back. Well, we'd all like to be able to undo the pain of the austerity and uh, not just for ourselves, but also for our neighbours and those in our community. But the point is, that's not a cost-free option. So the if that precedes that question isn't valid. It gets a lot it's, softer it's a further question. Down, yeah. And if you look at the various ways Sunday Business Post Red Sea asked the very same question, the majority wanting pay restoration or being prepared to pay for it diminishes rapidly. Uh, yeah, well, it, it, it goes down to 47% for public sector pay restoration if it meant lower spend on public services, which I think is probably most people's benchmark. Mm. But, and, and the bad news for those in the public sector is they broke it down on party support lines mm. as well. Uh, 70% uh, for Fianna Fáil, 70% percent for Labour, 61% for Sinn Féin. So in other words, the overwhelming majority of people who count. Yeah, but Fianna Gael are the ones in power. They've yeah. only got 54% of support for public sector restoration. So as long as they're in charge, Pascal Donoghue will have to toe a little bit of a harder line. A uh, lot still to come. We're going to talk about children's television and it being outsourced. And if you're shopping, compared to the North, we're paying a fortune. It's an old perennial, but the Sunday Times has done a bit of legwork on this and we'll give you the figures. Stay with us.
This is the Sunday show with Jonathan Healy, Richie McCormick. Good morning to you. How are you, Jonathan? You well? Not too bad. Uh, we've we have digested the match already, so we're we're over we're over we're over that. Sure. And lots of coverage about it in the papers, I presume. Yeah, tons of it as well, and deservedly so because it's not every year uh, that Ireland, in fact, it's never they've never done it. Beat all the three big major test sides from the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, no side has done it since two thousand and three. That I, was I think we, we've had this analysis already, Lee. An English team that won the World Cup, yeah. But <laughs> you know, to to reflect on what we've done is remarkable, and especially in the most attritional circumstances last night as well whereby our back line in particular was decimated you know you're in trouble when your third choice scrum half is playing on the wing uh, that's that's kind of an issue um, that we did really really well to not only endure when we fell behind but to see that Keith Earls try and the subsequent fantastic uh, conversion from Paddy Jackson as well put us back in front and see us off to win the game it's just remarkable yeah well as I said let's see if we can uh, repeat that come the, uh, come the new year it's always year. a test isn't it it is yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, to keep the training up lads uh, any other stories uh, the, the one story that is breaking and it's kind of quasi sport Richie is, is this sex abuse scandal in the UK and, and seemingly according to reports this morning 20 more footballers have come forward now to, yeah. to say that they were abused as children it's deepening and growing in scale, not just by the day, but by the hour. This all began, of course, I think it was mid- middle of the week before last with Andy Woodward, a former crew and Barry in Sheffield United footballer who came forward to say that he was the subject of abuse from Barry Bennell, who was a coach that was a convicted paedophile in the mid-90s in the UK, who had worked with clubs like Crew and had connections to clubs like Manchester City. Since then, we've seen the likes of Paul Stewart, David White, and a few more come forward and say that at the hands of other coaches that they were the subject of abuse as well. This is a hugely reaching uh, subject because of the way that youth football in the UK, particularly in those 70s, 80s and 90s, was constructed in that p- players still came from small schoolboy clubs and coaches would have access to uh, w- unregulated a large amount of younger kids. This went unchecked and was all foregone for the I sake of the younger kid could end up being a professional footballer. But now we've seen the amount of names coming forward, the amount of clubs that are implicated. I think Gordon Taylor was speaking on Five Live this morning saying that Leeds are one of the clubs that are now but, being but investigated. For me, what's what's particularly alarming is yeah, those who went through the system yeah. and came out to become professional footballers, for every one of them, there could be 10 kids who might have yeah. gone through there and, and not succeeded. So this this could be far more reaching. We've, than, than we've, we've, seen, uh, we've seen stories of uh, there was a young Manchester United former Manchester United U product Andy Davis I believe is his name who committed suicide by the age of 30 in 1992 uh, there is talk that he would have worked under Benel as well uh, the suggestion that Gary Speed although it's not implicated that he was abused by this particular coach was of, uh, was involved in his coaching setup as well uh, back in the day so there are deep and long lasting effects for this and it's a really 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 disturbing chapter in football and it's one they're, they're, they are taking steps to address and addressing pretty quickly albeit one of the clubs that were heavily involved are heavily implicated in this crew their reaction to it mm. to be quite honest hasn't been the best and, and the resonance uh, yeah. is, is stark compared to what we've gone through in this country admittedly with different uh, organisations but the way that they dealt with it in the past the way that they're dealing with it now uh, you know, it, well, it's quite upsetting to watch from an Irish perspective given we've th- been through a lot of this. I was in the Department of Sport nearly 20 years ago when Derry O'Rourke, uh, who was convicted and supported swimming and all of that happened. And there are disturbing similarities. You know, comp- kids, young kids in a competitive sporting situation, they're really into their sport. They really want the chance. They really want to get on. He's a charismatic guy. He's the coach to be with. 
And then all this stuff happens. Mm. And, uh, of course, at the management level of these organisations, uh, and, and Irish Swimming, which is a very different organisation then, I should emphasise, than it is now, you know, uh, he, he, the star coach, you know, whatever he wanted was good enough. Yeah, uh, it's upsetting for parents thinking now because, you know, what's worse is it makes people second guess mm. the good people who are Absolutely, out there yeah. when they're giving their children into the trust of others that, that this is the kind of thing I that happened that, yeah, in the past. I think the setups now, as mentioned, there are, are far more uh, better policed than they would have been back back in the 70s and 80s in particular, and even into the early 90s too, especially in England, uh, whereby youth football is so heavily regulated now that, yeah. that the chances of this occurring again, the worry is this, if this is a trigger, there'll be more people coming forward, there'll be more people who want to basically go through and, 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 and I suppose comment about what's going on. It gives them a window again. to do so, which is important. Uh, what's coming up and off the ball this afternoon? Two live games for you tonight, uh, this afternoon, Jonathan. Manchester United, West Ham with the uh, Mayo Mafia of Nathan and Kevin Kilban are going to be <laughs> at Old Trafford this afternoon. <laughs> that the best Mayo can produce. Eh? Uh, unfortunately, well, it would seem so. Apart from Lee Keegan, the footballer of the year, they'll hasten that. Uh, we've also got Arsenal and Bournemouth before that as well. The Jack Wilshire Derby, uh, we'll call this one. Uh, it's going to be Alan McLaughlin alongside Bernard O'Toole for that. And we'll look back as well on yesterday's fantastic uh, 27-24 victory over the Wallabies of Andy Ward. Okay, off the ball from midday. Thank you very much, Richie, for that. Uh, we are with our panel, Jared Howland, uh, columnist of the Irish Examiner and Public Affairs Consultant, Lee's Hand of the Sunday Times, and Cormac Lucy, uh, columnist with the Sunday Times, the Mail, and a financial analyst as well. I want to talk about children's television, which is definitely not a subject I thought we were going to be discussing, but uh, there's, there's an article in the Mail on Sunday. Ian Dempsey has done a piece. Um, I have to say, the worst thing about Ian Dempsey, and Ian's such a lovely guy, but you look at the picture, he hasn't changed a dot. I mean, this is a picture from 30 feckin' years ago. It's the same man. In fact, he probably looks a bit younger now. Ian, good morning if you are listening. Uh, but he is saying RT is right to outsource children's television. Discuss. Well, I'd, I'd actually probably agree with Ian. Um, I think that outsourcing it to independent companies opens up possibilities of new fresh ways of doing things um, of innovative maybe more sort of cutting edge programming they maybe I mean they were probably being run I don't have I'm not privy to, to information about budgeting in, in, within RT but I'm quite sure maybe the independents might have more money to actually just lavish in, into programs and to put put to you know to put into programs and I think it freshens up the whole thing it's not like I mean everybody in, in RT who works in the department will be redeployed and so on. It's, but I it's always wonder, is, is that always a false economy? That you have people who are full-time staff members in, in position X and then they get moved around and, and they still have to be paid for in their other roles and the money has to be still paid to make the children's television. Yeah, and also the whole technology thing has completely changed. So you go back to the you know television in the 60s, it was so capital intensive. In effect, in Ireland, only one company could do it. That's our historical legacy now. It no longer makes sense that public, the public service on children's television is an essential public service, actually. But it doesn't need to be tied and tethered to one public company. For example, Friday night, I was at a performance of the RT Symphony Orchestra, which was stunningly good. It was also, I'm sure, stunningly expensive, far more expensive than my ticket. Uh, I mean, I must have been subsidised as a ticket payer to a, to a considerable yeah. extent to enjoy that. Um, but that it should be necessarily part of a public service broadcasting company that depends on a licence, which goes to them alone, which the vast majority of people actually receive through other media other than a box 
which used to be traditionally called a television. But you can receive all that stuff through any other media, but you can say you don't have a television, so you don't have to pay a television license. And any other company that is producing, including this one, who is providing media of a public service sort, has no call on that public service contribution via a licence fee. So the whole thing from first principle is profoundly broken. Yes, well, they're not going to fix it just by getting rid of the children's television from no, Montreal. No, I mean, ch- children, uh, you know, they go onto YouTube and they watch videos of, you know, of people unwrapping presents and making sort that of fairy does, dolls oh and things. God, and those videos. <laughs> oh, my God. There's a child in America who must have every toy that has ever been created and he insists on commentating through each of them. But what's frustrating about this you mentioned YouTube right which is a real challenge for public sector broadcasting like RTE have a children called RTE a channel called RTE Junior which doesn't have ads and it has all these little homegrown in um, slots and there's native programming and there's also the BBC which makes wonderful children's television and it's ad free and that is great for parents because that means they can let the kids watch it without being pestered by all the toy ads that are on mm. at this time of year but there's, uh, uh, by outsourcing this and by downgrading it, Cormac, are they running the risk of excluding the generation that will be supposedly watching public service television in 20 years' time who won't have the zig and zag effect and the, the affinity that, you know, my generation would have had with the den? Well, what about one well, of wagon sure, for sure my generation? Wagon, exactly, yes. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure they're downgrading it. I, I think there's a strong <laughs> argument for the state to focus less on providing services itself and more on buying them in from others. And in that role, the state can act as a quality guarantor. Whereas if the state is the employer, it has to live with the quality provided by its own servants. And there's a lot of evidence that the state is a poor employer, a poor representative of taxpayers' interests in managing its employees. Just coming back to the public-private pay split, there's an article in the Sunday Independent from Owen O'Malley with the headline, Comparing Public and Private Sectors is Not Like for Like. And he makes the reasonable argument in defence of public sector being paid more, that there are more graduates and all the rest of it. What he doesn't mention is the pay differential between public and private in the UK is 16%. Here it's 41%. Uh, and you'd expect the blend in, in, of st- in favour of the public, public sector. So, so I think there's a strong argument for the state to try and outsource more and buy in stuff well, and use ga- competitive. Guarantee bidding. you, as, as sure as little gap, green apples grow on trees, the, the people who are working for these independent production companies will be paid a lot less than those who are currently employed by RTE to make the same programme. True, and I think maybe Ian Dempsey made the point in his piece, or I read it somewhere, and it was a good point that one of the absolutely amazingly successful and terrific areas of creativity in Ireland is the sort of is the animation industry as well which are producing which is producing absolutely wonderful material yep. and there's absolutely no reason why they couldn't be handed um, a series or a programme or something you know and just sort of say look go off and make something and it'll be funny and it'll be witty and it will reflect what Irish kids like so yeah. I mean I really don't see anything well, we should, we, whatever you do don't stifle the creativity because that's no. what brought us Wanderley Wagon mm. and Bosco and Zig and Zag and all the others I just want to finish up on Valerie Flynn's story in the Sunday Times Lisa. I think you were looking at this Smiths and Eason two of the biggest Irish owned retailers are charging customers in the Republic more than those in Britain for popular toys and books in the run up to Christmas the markup is particularly stark in Eason Ireland's biggest reseller the Sunday Times would often did the research on this Historopedia 
by Fatty and John Burke. I don't know if Fatty is related to John or is that the publisher? Mm. Um, a children's book, oh no, Children's Book of Ireland from Gill, the Irish publisher. It's on sale in Easons for 19.99 on O'Connell Street, down from the recommended retail price of 24.99. Bargain, says you, after saving a fiver. In Newry, in the same shop, it's available for 10.99, which is 12.97 euro. And that's a 54% markup in Dublin. This is this is this has been bugging me for years. I mean, this has just annoyed the hell out of me for absolutely for decades. I mean, any when I, any time I hit the UK, first thing I tend to do is I go to a bookshop and I buy books. Even when sterling is high, it's still cheaper to buy books in in in, uh, in the UK. I, and I know that the the retailers and the wholesalers will say, "Well, we get hammered with VAT and VAT." And it can't be that hammered blah, blah, blah. by VAT to fifty four percent. It is. It's, it's an absolute and utter inequity and it has been going on uh, for for decades that they have just been putting on markup after markup and at a time when everyone is trying to get kids to read more to enjoy books to you know there's pro- liter- literacy promotions it just makes the cost of going and buying books here prohibitive yeah. and it you know you go into a shop and you peel off the sticker oh, that and I do that and I just yeah, do drive myself insane well. but I keep doing it still you know and you see you know, 17 99 and you see 7 99 and I mean even with my absolutely appalling maths even I can work out that that ain't equitable mm. and even with a, with a VAT I don't know I, I do, I've never seen any political will to actually go in and tackle this it's well, it just, just people, are going, going to vote, people it. are going to vote with their fingers and they're going to go online and, 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 and buy and Larry Flynn's article makes the further point that the same broad difference applies to children's toys. That that's another area where people are paying more here in euro terms than they would pay up north. Well, let's let's face it. You know, government fell on putting that on children's shoes. So, you know, be. Yep. You know, so well. All I'll say is, Santi is there, and he's making sure now that the, for the overflow that the elves can't mm-hmm. make, he'll probably go to Newry, I'd imagine, rather well, than I, I this suspect year. books and toys they're not necessities. There's no that in books. So when when you're in the mindset that you're buying a book or toy, you're not in value for money mode. Yeah, and that's oh, why yeah. that's oh, why yeah. it yeah. happens. No, I, I suspect you're often in panic mode, which you're is the worst. Jared <laughs> Howland, um, Lee's hand, and Cormac Lucy were a <laughs> panel going through the papers. Thank you all very much for joining us. We're going to talk about our Camby and the story on the Sunday Business. Post this morning, which suggests that the state isn't going to meet the cost of that drug for cystic fibrosis patients.